Good evening. It's a very intimate group this evening. Maybe it's not a popular gift that people are all that interested in, I don't know. But we're going to go through it anyway. Yay, yay, you're more holy. You're all more holy. I remember all your faces. I'll see you in heaven. The others, I don't know. Um, <laughs> let's pray. God, we thank you for all these spiritual gifts, and we ask, Lord, for them, not because we want to see a spectacle or anything like that, Lord, but we just want the gifts that you have to offer, as we know that the gifts you offer are good. And so, Lord, if it is your will that this evening that this particular gift is exercised or the other ones, we ask that you would gift those to us. I know for myself there are some things that I desire to know just about things that are happening at the church and things that are happening in the ministry. So I personally would appreciate a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. And perhaps there are people here tonight that are needing a miracle or healing, a prophetic word. Whatever gift that they're needing, Lord, I pray that that would be given to them this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now we are in verse 10. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And so we're going to take a look at both this evening, continuing on with this gift of speaking in tongues just for a little bit. And then after we wrap that part of the study up, we'll be moving on to taking a look at the interpretation of tongues. So let's start this evening by taking a look at the gift of tongues and just admitting to ourselves that we have a limited intellect to verbalize to God the, the true depth of love that we have for Him, where the words that we have and have accumulated and the vocabulary that we've accumulated throughout our lives are just still inadequate to express what we really desire to share with God. And so just like David expressed in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 20, he said, And what more can David say to you? I just love when people talk in the third person about themselves. And the amazing thing is that this is David who's saying this because David who wrote a lot of the Psalms. Can you imagine this? That if anyone could express their heart and what they feel and their emotions and all this stuff to God, you would think it's David. If anyone can do it, it's David. But when David experienced this amazing grace and this overflowing love from God, he asked, what more can I say? And he's at a loss for words. And that's just simply amazing. And so we see how the gift of tongues is just this admittance on our part of our inability to fully express to God how we feel about him. And so this joy that we have, the praise and the gratitude and appreciation, the love, all those things that are really deep within us where just mere words cannot fully express how we feel towards God, that's the gift of tongues. That gift where it bridges that inability to express to God what we want to express, but we don't have the words to express. Also, it's an admittance of our limited capacity to pray for one another. John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. An issue that we have with prayer is that we don't always know the will of God. 
we pray for that because we don't always know. We hope to pray in accordance to His will, but we don't always know the will of God. And so we're limited in knowing God's plan and how He is working in the lives of people. We're limited in our perspective. We're limited in knowing God's purposes and His processes. And so we pray to God about the things that we hope for, but ultimately it's according to His will and we just don't always know what that is. Now what does Paul write about praying in tongues? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now this is one of the amazing, great things about praying in tongues. Is that if you pray in a tongue, your spirit prays, but your mind is unfruitful. Meaning, you can rest assured that what you are praying in tongues is indeed according to God's will, even though you don't know what God's will is. And you can be at peace when you're gifted by the Spirit to worship and to pray in tongues, because if it is truly by the Spirit and it is not of your flesh, it is in accordance to God's will. And you can be at peace that God receives and understands your deepest expression of praise, gratitude, love, appreciation, all those things, even though your mind can't interpret what you're saying because it's deeper than just the physical words and the physical world. It's an expression of the Spirit. And you can be at peace that you are praying, worshiping in accordance to His will. Now earlier in the spiritual gift series, we looked at how the spiritual gifts, how they sometimes overlap one another. For example, to have the gift of healing, you also have to have the gift of miracles and you have to have the gift of faith for that healing to occur. So they kind of all blend in together there. And I believe the same is true for the gift of speaking in tongues. In order to speak in tongues, one must have the gift of faith. This goes for all of the spiritual gifts really. In order to receive any of the spiritual gifts from God, there's an element of faith that needs to be exercised and one must possess the gift of faith. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God and the Spirit is only received by faith. Our salvation is a gift from God. It is only received by faith. And so we have these spiritual gifts that are available to us, but they won't manifest in us without receiving them by faith. I take possession of God's gifts through faith. It's not something I deserve. It's not something that I earn. They are gifts given to us because He is gracious and I only receive them by faith. Mark chapter 2, there's this wonderful story about faith and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this. Starting in verse 2. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and He was preaching the word to them and they came, bringing to Him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Another beautiful story about faith is in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 25. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, 
and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now notice something about faith. That it involves action. Whether it was the paralytic's friends who made a hole in the roof and let him down, or it was the hemorrhaging woman's actions that set off her faith. See, the threshold where faith takes off is marked by an action. And so when we read about the hemorrhaging woman in verse 28, it says, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And so there's a corresponding action that that was the threshold of where her faith was activated when she decided that if she touched Jesus' garments, she would be made well. Actions often accompany faith, which is why Jesus often tells people to do something to activate their faith. Right, Mark chapter 3, Jesus told the guy with the withered hand to stretch out his hand. Right, Mark 6, Jesus told his disciples to divide the five loaves and the two fishes to feed the 5,000 people. He told Peter to step out of the boat to walk on the water. He told Peter to put the net on the other side to catch the fish. There's this action that crosses that threshold where faith just kind of explodes. And so Jesus himself had some accompanying actions with his own faith. And I don't think it was for his faith, but for the faith of those he was ministering to. For example, the deaf man who had this speech impediment in Mark chapter 7. Right? Jesus put his fingers into this guy's ears, and after spitting, I guess it was like a wet willy or something, he touched his tongue before his eyes were opened, and his tongue released, and then he spoke plainly. Right? And then Mark chapter 8, the blind man that Jesus healed. Jesus spit on his eyes. I don't get the spitting stuff that Jesus likes doing. And then he laid his hands on him twice. The first time the guy kind of saw blurry stuff, like people were walking, looked like trees, right, that they were walking. So Jesus did it again, and then the guy's sight was restored. And it wasn't that Jesus lacked faith there. I think what it was is the guy's faith grew from that first moment, and he saw something, and then his faith grew some more, and then Jesus did it a second time, and he saw his faith was just exploding. And so faith is often released with action, which is why we're told to lay hands on people or anoint people with oil, because there's this point of reference, this action for faith to be released. It's where the threshold of faith just kind of explodes, right? Faith is paramount in receiving the gifts of the Spirit. Paul asked the Galatians about receiving the Holy Spirit by faith in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so it's a rhetorical question, obviously. It's by faith. Now, let's remember that although the spiritual gifts are wonderful, awesome things, that love is the superior gift of all gifts. Right? Love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in regards to the gift of tongues, this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
So having the gift of tongues or any other spiritual gift for that matter does not mean that one is more spiritual than somebody else who does not have a particular spiritual gift. And some people believe that if one does not speak in tongues, then they are not spiritual or the Holy Spirit is not in them. And that's simply just not biblical. I've been in some situations where I've been accused of not being saved because I didn't have certain spiritual giftings at that particular moment. And they were saying, oh, you're not saved. The Holy Spirit's not in you. But that's just simply not a biblical thing. If the spiritual gifts that God has given you do not result in love, or you're saying, or you're damning people to hell, you know, then those spiritual gifts are empty. They're worth nothing. And so the opposite is true as well. There are others who believe that if one does speak in tongues, that those people are demonic, that that is not a spiritual thing of God or of Jesus, but those are demonic things. And that's just not a biblical idea either. The debate isn't the attainment of spiritual gifts or the stance against spiritual gifts. It's, are we abiding in God? Are we abiding in God? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love. If you speak in tongues, that is awesome. And I am jealous of you. Because that's just a wonderful gift between you and God. But that does not give us a place to look down on those who don't believe or don't experience or don't understand the gift as you do. And it would be arrogant to think that we are spiritually greater than those who don't have that gift. And if you come from the camp that does not believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, there's no place for you to look down on those who do. The love we all have for God is great no matter which camp you're in, right? I know people in both camps. And the thing is, we all have to walk in love regardless of how we look at this spiritual gifts issue. Are we people of love? And the real evidence of God in your life is how love is manifested from your life, not these spiritual gifts from your life. And so now let's move on to the second spiritual gift of this evening, the gift of the interpretation of tongues. This gift is actually the only one we're told to pray for, unless you guys can find evidence of that elsewhere. But from what I've been reading, this is the only gift that we're told to pray for. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I believe that the prayer for the interpretation of tongues is for when the speaking of tongues is in a public setting and not in one's privacy. It's so that the church is built up. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 19, Nevertheless, in church... I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So in private, there isn't a need for interpretation. Right? You just do it. But in public, like in a church setting, the gift of interpretation must be present when exercising the gift of speaking in tongues. And there are definite limits, restrictions, boundaries we are given in exercising the gift of tongues in public. And when that gift is exercised in church, there must be someone in the church with the interpretation of tongues to translate or interpret that for us. Which brings us to defining the difference between interpreting and translating. Translating is more like word-for-word -word transferring from one language to another. Interpretation is 
different. There's a lot more leeway in interpreting. Now, I've had the experience of using interpreters more than translators, that we have interpreters, even though we sometimes call them translators. But really, they're interpreters, right? I've taught in many other countries that I've needed interpreters, where while I'm preaching or teaching, I'm actually going a lot longer than I thought I would go, and I forget that I have this interpreter or translator here with me, and so I'm going and I'm saying all these sentences, and then I just remember, oh, he has to interpret for me. And so I let him go, and I've been speaking for like two minutes. And so he'll just say one sentence. I'm like, that's it? I was talking a long time. Like, all you have is like one sentence. Or I'd say just like a few words, right? I'll I'll say like a sentence or two sentences, and then the guy would just go on for a really long time. I'm like, what are you saying? All I said was these two sentences, and you're just going, 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 and so I'm just wondering what's going on here. And so it's similar to like Chinese movies, right? When you watch Chinese movies and there's subtitles down in the Chinese, and so you have these subtitles, those are very often interpretations, not translations. Because if you understand both of those languages, English and Chinese, they aren't following the dialogue word for word. And sometimes you're just saying like, that's not what he said. And I'll tell my wife that all the time. That's not what he said. What he meant was this. And I'd have to interpret what the words were and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, so it's more funny, right? And she's just looking at me really puzzled. Like, no, I'd rather just what the subtitle said. And so I've often wondered about the things that I've said and how they've been interpreted or misinterpreted by the person because they don't seem to fit. The lengths of what I said is very different from what this person said. So I was in Kenya just a few years ago and many people there understand English and there's just a small group of students who didn't understand it. So that had to be translated into Kiswahili. And so when I taught, those who understood English would laugh at the funny things that I said, whether they be jokes or whatever, you know, they'd laugh or they'd chuckle or whatever. But when it was translated into Kiswahili, those people didn't laugh. I was thinking, well, something's lost in this translation. And something was lost in the word-for-word transferring of English to Kiswahili. And so interpretation is different. Interpretation isn't just straight word-for-word. When interpreting, the interpreter has more freedom and seeks to deliver understanding from these words because some of the words or phrases wouldn't make sense if it was just straight word-for-word. And so the interpreter has to kind of seek explanations and seek understanding and to deliver those things. And so it's like those Chinese subtitles when those guys are interpreting, they can't say like, well, you know, we have this thing and just wouldn't make any sense if it was like word for word. For example, there's a Chinese saying, I've eaten more salt than you've eaten rice. And so... That, if it was word for word, and you have no context or history for those things, you wouldn't understand the translation. You need that interpreted for you. And so what that saying means is that someone has a lot more experience than you. They've lived way longer than you have in that they've eaten more salt than you've eaten rice. I don't know, I eat a lot of rice. When my mom was saying that to me, I was like, are you sure? Because I eat a lot of rice. But that's what the meaning is, right? And so you interpret those things and you get those things by interpretation. So when someone is translating, often they go into interpreting. Otherwise, what was said just doesn't make sense. So when someone interprets tongues, 
sometimes the length of the interpretation doesn't always match. Because I've heard it when people have been speaking in tongues and they're speaking for a while. And they're kind of just going on for a while and then the interpreter just says like a few words. I'm like, really? That whole thing that he just said was just that? Or the other way around where someone was speaking in tongues and it's just a very short time and the interpreter kind of just goes on for a long time. Well, it's an interpretation. It's not a translation. So it happens to me all the time. I don't know if it happens for you when I have an interpreter. I'm speaking and the lengths just don't always match up. I speak for a short time. He speaks for a long time. I speak for a long time. He speaks for a short time. Sometimes I'm just like, really? That's what I say? Because I'll go on a long diatribe on something and then this guy won't even say anything. He'll just be like, yeah. And that happened to me in Kenya also. I'm just talking about this whole thing and then he just like looks at me and goes, yeah. And I'm thinking maybe what happened was he already said what I was going to say because he saw where it was going so he kind of already explained it. I hope that's what it was. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So when a person speaks in tongues, that person isn't speaking to men, but to God. The interpretation isn't addressed to man, but an interpretation of what was said to God in worship, in praise, or thanksgiving. It's an interpretation of what was addressed to God. And so we speak to God in tongues, but God doesn't speak to His church in tongues. The way God speaks to His church is through prophecy. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Sometimes the interpretation can also be prophecy, and we talk about that overlapping as the interpretation is often upbuilding, encouraging, or consoling. And as we shared before, the gifts accompany one another, and it's not unusual for the gift of interpretation to include that of prophecy. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And I point this out to show that we don't have control in whether we speak in tongues or not. And there are some who believe that you lose all control when you speak in tongues or when the Spirit comes over you. But Paul clearly instructs for those who speak in tongues to keep silent about speaking them if there's not an interpreter. So obviously you have control over that. You don't just go all crazy ballistic and, and go all this stuff and say like I have no control of stuff going on. You do. So, how does the gift of interpretation of tongues work? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. It's written in the Bible that we have a variety of gifts, service, and activities. And I love variety. That's why I love dim sum. I love buffets. I love variety, right? I don't like the same thing all the time. And I'm so glad God is into variety. 
And so there are these varieties of activities and the gift of interpretation may be active in a variety of ways just like other gifts can be varied in the ways that they're activated. And so you look at the gift of healing as an example. There are several times when Jesus healed the blind and even in that they're all different. Mark chapter 8 verse 23 Jesus spit on the eyes and he laid his hands on the blind man in Bethsaida. And the guy didn't see clearly right away, as we said. He saw unclearly, and guys looked like trees. And then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and then he saw everything clearly. Very different than in John when Jesus is in Jerusalem. John chapter 9, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and there's this guy who was blind from birth. And in verse 6, Jesus spit on the ground, not on the guy's eyes, and he made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. That pool, Siloam, means scent. And so he went and he washed, and then he came back seeing. Different. And then there was another occurrence where he went to Jericho, and then as he was leaving Jericho, there was this guy there, Bartimaeus. And this is in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And all Jesus did was he said to Bartimaeus, go your way, your faith has made you well. Didn't touch him, just spoke to him. So just really different ways of healing the same ailment. Three healings of blindness done in a variety of ways, a variety of healing activity. And I bring this up because the way that the spiritual gifts are active in one's life may look very different in another person's life. Just looks different. And how they operate in each one of us individually may look different. And there are a variety of activities, so don't expect the same exact manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. It may look different. It may feel different. Everything about it may be different. It's varied. And how one experiences the gifts of the Holy Spirit may very well feel very different than someone else's. You might feel nothing yet the gift of the Holy Spirit operates in you. It's not the feelings we're after or someone else's sensation or experience we're after. We know that there are a variety of activities, so just know it may look and feel different from one person to another. That's how it is also with the gift of interpretation of tongues. It just may look different, it may be experienced differently, it may feel different. And you need to keep in mind that this is an interpretation of tongues, not a translation of tongues. When the interpreter understands what is said, but it's not necessarily word for word. And just because a person has had that gift, or currently has that gift, does not mean that that person will always have that gift moving forward. It's just a gift from the Holy Spirit, and He gives as He wills. So it doesn't mean that you always have it. Your gift of interpretation may not be present when someone speaks in a tongue tonight, and yet you've had it before. Or you've never had it before, and you might have it tonight. And it's just like any other gift that God gives. You might have it one time, but you might not have it the other time. And just because you had the gift of something before doesn't mean you always have it. Because, say, for example, you had the gift of healing. Do you always have it? And if your argument is, yes, you do, then you should be at children's hospital healing all those kids, right? But that's not the case. You don't have it all the time. You have it when God gifts that to you. And it's the same thing with the interpretation of tongues. Just because you had it before doesn't mean if it happens or when it happens tonight that you're going to automatically have it. We still need to exercise faith. We still 
have to pray for God for those things. So when I ask if there's an interpreter of tongues before we publicly speak in tongues, perhaps there is an element of faith for someone here who hasn't exercised that gift before so that that gift can be manifest here. And when you are anointed of the Holy Spirit with a spiritual gift, you know it. You know it. It's something that you experience and you just know that you have it. And, and with every spiritual gift we've looked at, we've attempted to look into the Old Testament to see how that gift was manifested there. And so for this particular gift, there isn't a direct interpretation of tongues, but there is something similar in that there's an interpretation of dreams. And so we read in Genesis of Joseph and his gift of interpreting dreams. That gift of interpretation got him in trouble with his brothers, but that gift also helped him rise in the ranks of Egypt and with Pharaoh, and he ended up being a very powerful man and saving his people. And we also see this gift of interpretation with Daniel in the book of Daniel. Daniel built this reputation of the Spirit of God being with him, and he had the gift of interpreting dreams. Not just dreams, but other things as well. Mysteries, right? And so King Nebuchadnezzar recognized that Daniel had the spirit of the holy God in him. Daniel chapter 4 verse 8. As did the queen. Daniel chapter 5 verse 11. They recognized that Daniel had this gift of interpretation. And they recognized that the spirit of the holy God was with him. And so King Belshazzar was heir to King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Belshazzar was perplexed as he was partying that this unrecognizable inscription appeared on his wall, right? Mene, mene, tekel, and parson, right? Daniel chapter 5, verse 25. He's like, what is that? And so Belshazzar summons all of his magicians and all these other folks to try to interpret what was on that wall, and no one can do it. And so he's reminded by the queen, hey, your grandfather had this guy who can interpret dreams. We need to call him in. And so he gets called in to interpret what this saying is. Now, it's not exactly the interpretation of tongues, but there is a similarity in that interpretation as a gift from God, right? Interpreting things of the unknown, right? And so when we look at the New Testament even, there isn't an instance where we read of the gift of interpretation of tongues being manifested. Like, there isn't a direct interpretation where someone says these things were said and so this is what that means. But what we do have are writings from Paul about this gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And Paul wrote about this gift to the Corinthians. Why? Because this gift was abused. And so he wrote to the Corinthians because they needed to be corrected. And the Corinthian church was just a problem-filled church. Similar to many other churches today, I think. And when we study Corinthians, we're going to see how messed up this church was. The Corinthian church was a divided church. And it was a church that struggled really badly with immorality. Just extremely immoral. And the immorality, the sinfulness of the church was actually tolerated within the church. People weren't rebuked, corrected. They weren't challenged to live in reality, a pleasing life to God. And so they thought that they were more enlightened than other Christians. And I find this fascinating because this is a lot of what's happening in our church today. That they find themselves to be more enlightened because they were more tolerant 
of different people with different lifestyles and different choices and different things and different sins and different struggles. They were more tolerant of all these different people in their church, so they thought they were a better Christian. They thought they were a better church. While in reality, it was just a loss of reverence for a holy God. And what they interpreted as tolerance was really just compromise. And so the way that they viewed things, such as the Lord's Supper or the resurrection or spiritual gifts, which is why Paul wrote to them about spiritual gifts, all of that stuff had to be corrected by Paul. He wrote about all these things to the Corinthian church because they had it wrong. They had some major issues to deal with here, right? Communion, resurrection, spiritual gifts. Those are big things, right? It's not like, how are you being an usher? It's not small things. These are big things. But you know what? God is awesome and God is gracious because just like in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If the Corinthian church didn't have all those struggles, we wouldn't have that epistle that gives us so much insight into the resurrection, spiritual gifts, the Lord's Supper. So we wouldn't have that epistle to deal with some of the things that we're struggling with. And Corinthians gives us a lot of clarity on some big issues. But the weird thing is that for a lot of churches, it doesn't really even matter still. They still struggle with that stuff. They still struggle with how to view communion, the Lord's Supper, with the resurrection, with spiritual gifts. And the church today still struggles with all of these matters. And since this is focused towards spiritual gifts, we're just going to take a look at that. Okay? Just spiritual gifts with Corinthians. People in and out of the church have abused the gifts of the Spirit, right? This has been abused. And, and so it's no surprise that the spiritual gifts can be seen in, in such a negative light because so many people have been exploited by these gifts because those exercising those are doing it for personal gain. And so there's no surprise that people are not really jumping in with both feet, that there's a lot of intrepidation that we don't know. We don't know what we can trust because there's been so much misrepresentation of the Holy Spirit and claiming to have the gifts when they really didn't have the gifts. So we see the result of honest, genuine Christians who deny or neglect the gifts of the Spirit because of what they've experienced, what they've heard, what they've seen that hasn't been good. And I've shared this story before about my dad who had health issues and he went to a healing service and the guy pushed him down and I asked my dad, are you healed? You went down. He was like, no, he just pushed me down. I couldn't hold up against him. And I was like, do you feel any different? He was like, no, I'm actually hurt more. He pushed me down. And so that really kind of played with me. Like, I don't know if I believe that stuff. You know, I was impressionable. I was in high school when I brought him to this healing service and I'm just wondering all of this stuff. And so this hyper Pentecostalism and charismania, that sort of stuff, I really had a bad distaste in my mouth for those things. And so I think all of us have seen this with televangelists or other types of things, big tent revivals or whatever it may be, this abuse or this exploitation, the lies and not the real and true exercises of this gift. And what kind of brought me back was experiencing these gifts in what 
is more orderly and non-chaotic and done in decency in what we are doing in afterglow service in Calvary Chapel and seeing things happen there with words of wisdom and people speaking in tongues and interpretations of tongues and hearing prophecies and words of knowledge and words of wisdom and all this kind of stuff happening that finally had me say oh, there's a balance to this stuff it's not all the way over here where I have to throw out all the stuff because of bad representations and it's not the other side of it either there's this good balance to all of this stuff and the gifts of the Holy Spirit need to be operated biblically so that they aren't abused and used to exploit people and when exercised biblically they're beautiful gifts that God has given to his children they're to be exercised in decency and in order otherwise it tends to be chaotic and confusing and uncontrolled and kind of just going off and so I hope for our church to be open to the spiritual gifts, definitely not closed to them. We believe that they are alive, that they're dynamic, and they're working right now when they're given to us, and to exercise them in a biblical fashion, honoring God with the gifts he has given us. And that's the stance of our church. We believe in them. We're not cessationists. We don't believe that they are just back in the day of Pentecost or during that time, and then it ends. We believe that they're for today. And so with those that don't believe that it's today, I have a question for them just in one particular gift, the gift of teaching. Because then is there a gift of teaching from the flesh? If you don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit and one of the gifts of the Spirit is teaching, then is that of the flesh? If it's not of the Spirit? That's the only question that I really want answered by them, but I really never get a good answer from them. Anyway, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gifts that you give us. And this evening, we have faith for the gifts, though we don't know what you have for us. And we ask, God, that those gifts would be made manifest tonight as some are expecting a word from you or needing something from you, Lord. So as our faith is there for those things, please provide them. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.